0: Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Friday. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we have an awesome show planned for you today. I don't know if you guys remember, and you should remember, last Friday's show, we had uh, Sarah McAvee and Nick Searcy in uh, talking about Capital Punishment 2, uh, Nick Circe's next documentary about what happened on January 6th. Sarah walked us through what's happened to her life and her husband, Colton, who's been incarcerated basically the past two years over January 6th. The January 6th issue is near and dear to my heart. Those of you that have been watching Fearless over the last two and a half years, you know that when this event first happened on day one, on January 6th, January 7th, I was calling BS. I was not on board this insurrection narrative and all of that. And I've been very upset about Ashley Babbitt. And so Nick and Sarah last week educated me even more about some of the events and some of the people harmed. Why can't I think of the woman's name they kept talking about that also got killed. Uh, But anyway, we had a great interview last week. I wanna continue the conversation about January 6th because I think and know There's going to be more information coming out that puts January 6th in its proper perspective. And so today we're going to be joined by a reporter, a writer, a U.S. citizen, a brave patriot, Steve Baker, who has been following the January 6th issue very closely and is involved with some reporting that disrupts the corporate media narrative around January 6th. And so I wanna make sure that me and my audience has a full understanding of January 6th as it bubbles back into the news cycle in a major way. And so Steve Baker's here in Nashville in studio with me today. We also are expecting that uh, Tarek Johnson's gonna join us today over Skype. He's, he's a former US Capitol police officer who was a Lieutenant who's basically become a whistleblower disputing the corporate media narrative. But I I just want to start with this conversation we'll have today with Steve Baker. Hopefully we'll have Tariq Johnson on at the back end of this show uh, so you guys can get a better understanding of what really happened on January 6th and why it's important and why we should be upset about it. Uh, I'm going to get to Steve Baker here in a minute, but before I do that, I just want to open up some room uh, for the conversation by talking about our passion on this show, and that's preborn. You guys know, as Fearless Soldiers, uh, we support preborn, one of the best organizations, if the best organization, uh, supporting expectant mothers who are considering aborting their baby. Preborn provides these women with an ultrasound, introducing them to their baby's heartbeat, an image of that baby, and that has an incredible impact on that expected mother. She is more than twice as likely to choose life, and that's when Preborn really steps up its support. They help that woman through her pregnancy and then help her with all the needs she needs through the first two years of that baby's life. Preborn is awesome. It's a part of our mindset here at Fearless that. Uh, Life starts at conception. Life starts inside the womb. We support that mentality and we support preborn financially because they save babies' lives. Two ways to do it go to your phone, pound two five zero, say the keyword baby, or you can do it the way that I like to do, preborn.com slash Jason. That's preborn.com slash Jason. Send me an email, drop me a note, let me know that you have supported them. Whether it's $5, whether it's $5,000, it all goes to ultrasounds and supporting that expectant mother. The, the money isn't wasted on mid-level executives and middle management. It actually helps expectant mothers. Please support pre-born. Now, Steve Baker here in studio with me. Thank you, Steve, uh, for joining for joining us. So this week, Steve, I read a story uh, that you wrote in February. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm a tiny bit late, but I read it this week, and it's an awesome story about Tarek Johnson, the lieutenant uh, with the Capitol Police, who ba- who got suspended and basically run out right. of of the Capitol Police, and the heroic things that he did on January 6th that that are documented, backed up by witnesses, backed up by video, and how he was suspended for 17 months and basically run off the force and is, is been villainized when he actually did heroic things. Meanwhile, Henry Harry Dunn, a private on the uh, Capitol Police Force, who's been the star, a media darling, honored by President Biden, and... He did not perform any type of heroism in comparison to Tariq Johnson, but he's been celebrated. Steve, I, I want to start here by playing uh this interview or parts. It's about a three and a half minute clip of an interview Harry Dunn did two years ago with ABC. That was the first thing that set, not the first thing, but as soon as I saw it, my alarms went off like, this guy sounds like Jussie Smaller to me, but Let's play the first three and a half, four minutes of an interview he did with ABC.
1: Now to an ABC News exclusive, a Capitol Police officer who fought off the violent mob on January 6th is telling his story on camera for the very first time. Officer Harry Dunn told our Chief Justice Correspondent Pierre Thomas
2: what he saw that day and how he's moving forward.
3: There were so many calls on the radio. Priority, help, help. Somebody's trapped,
2: we need help. Shots fired. When Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn went to work on the morning of January 6th, it felt like a normal day. What's the first moment that you began to get a sense that something is
3: off kilter here? We were told to uh, get helmets, riot helmets. Uh, That was new. But no sense that all hell could break loose. Correct, correct.
2: Then the 13-year veteran seen here watches the crowd of thousands closed in on the east side of the Capitol. You just see a
3: sea of people, Trump flags, Confederate flags, then blue line flags, don't tread on me flags. And then you look down and you see officers fighting with these people, pepper spray, smoke grenades, gas grenades, pepper balls being thrown by everybody, flashbangs. We fought with these people who were prepared for a fight. They had on gas masks, they had on body armor, they had on two-way radios, they had on tactical gear,
2: bulletproof vests, they were ready to go. When you see that level of preparedness, did that surprise you, did it scare you? I was scared,
3: I was absolutely scared. I'm on this platform. I'm a big guy. I'm six foot seven. I'm this giant person. And we had our guns out. And I'm thinking, all these people out there, they're armed too. And I'm like, I'm gonna get shot. They're gonna take me out. I remember at one point, I said, How is this gonna
2: end? Eventually, the mob forced its way inside the Capitol building. Officer Dunn confronting a group carrying a Blue Lives Matter flag.
3: I said, hey, we got dozens of officers down. We got dozens of officers down. And you got the nerve to be holding a Blue Lives Matter flag. I thought they were going to have a moment where they, they came to and they realized, like, yo, what are we doing? But, like, they instantly snapped out of it. And they said, nah, we're doing this for you. We're doing this for you. And as one of the guys kept walking by, the other one pulled out his badge and said, trust me, I understand. We're doing this for you, buddy. And he's got a badge. He shows me his badge.
2: What did you think? Uh, A fellow officer's in the building You gotta be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me. Exhausted, Officer Dunn tried reasoning with a large group of protesters approaching a hallway he was guarding.
3: I literally told them, if they wanna get through here, you gotta go through me and They didn't, they just started talking to me. They were saying how Joe Biden did not win the election and nobody voted for him. So I took the bait and I, okay, what about me? I voted for Joe Biden, does
2: my vote not count? This is when Officer Dunn encountered a couple in the crowd who began hurling the most vile racial slurs at him, a black officer. And
3: his girlfriend, she had on a pink MAGA shirt. He said, hey, this voted for Joe Biden, guys. Hey, everybody, this voted for Joe Biden. They said, you.
2: So the crowd joined. In everybody,
3: everybody joined in with him.
0: <laughs> so when I heard that, I immediately. as a. This doesn't pass the smell test. That's me off my journalistic instincts. Didn't like the way the story was told. You have, back in February, wrote a great story comparing the disparate treatment between Harry Dunn and, and Tarek Johnson. It's, it seems like pretty soon you're going to update that story. Anyway, wh- where's the story stand now? What did you think about the way Harry Dunn is describing his day?
1: Yeah, let's go back a little bit further than the February story with Dunn. and my beginning of looking at Harry in particular and the situations and the situations that he described on January 6th began actually in the Oath Keepers trial last fall. I was there actually covering that trial for nine weeks every day in the courthouse. And I heard several things in that trial that really made my uh, antennas go up, my radar pinging into the red, that I didn't see as truthful. And this was both coming from uh, the Department of Justice, this was coming from FBI testimonies in the trial, it was coming from the judge himself, but it was also from some of the witnesses, and one of those witnesses was Harry Dunn. And I have always had a problem, first of all, with his story about this, chanting of the N-word at him. And let me explain why I personally have a problem with it. First of all, when you're in a crowd that size, and we're, we're talking about tens of thousands of people that were surrounding the Capitol, several thousand that actually came in through the building. A couple of those people were carrying Confederate flags. Is there a possibility that some yahoo used the N-word that day? I'd say, yeah, there's probably a pretty good chance. But in what is likely to be the single most recorded videoed event in the history of the world. That that particular incident that he describes, and he describes it not only in this interview that we just watched from ABC News, he described it in Congress before under oath before Congress, you know, uh, the the House Select Committee. He described it in multiple multiple interviews. He talks about it in his forthcoming book, which by the way, even though it's not out yet, I've already read, and he talks about it in um, so many other formats. And the reason why, as you said, it doesn't meet the Smith, sniff test, is that. If 30, 40, 50, as that's a quote from him, people joined in saying, boo, Biden, inward voter, chanting that over and over again with at least one or two out of every three people in the room holding up a cell phone, capturing video, the Department of Justice, the government, somebody would have released video of that. And from that point forward, we would have heard that. Narrative, And we would have heard a a sample of that video going forward in every January 6th story from that day forward. And that video has never been released. The government has never found it. No one has ever privately released it from their video collections. The sedition hunters, the open source um, uh, group of uh, investigative reporters that uh, sit around in their mom's basement and, and look at January 6th videos all day and try to identify people that were inside the Capitol. Those individuals have never found it. I don't believe it exists.
0: I don't think it exists either, but I, I, I you, you've mentioned you've read his book. And so he describes this event yes. again in his book? Yes. Are, are there other things in his book that don't add up to you?
1: There are. And, and to be honest uh, with Jason, we have... Within the next, we hoped within the next week through the blaze, we're going to be releasing a series of stories based on the things that I've seen in the video. I've had, I'm one of the few journalists that have had access to the 41,000 hours worth of video there at the Capitol. Uh, And I have uh, been compiling a list of anomalies, we'll call them for now, Uh, and without, without taking away the thunder of the, of the initial release of the story, I, I have looked extensively at Harry, and, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a scoop you know, if, if you want it. I do. I'd love to have a scoop. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't told this to anyone yet. It hasn't been uh, shared in any interview that I've done. I've not yet written about it, so it's going to be first here. In my process of investigating this series of events since uh, the Oath Keepers trial last fall, I reached out to Harry Not anticipating that he would respond to me favorably with, you know, granting me an interview, because I know for a fact that Harry read my story that was in the, uh, uh, that I wrote in February that you referred to. And I also know, coming back through sources, that Harry doesn't like me because I did not necessarily speak favorably of him in that story. But I was fair to the Capitol Police. I've been very fair in my series about the Capitol Police. I believe that they were set up that day. I believe Harry was set up that day. And the initial conversations I had with him, he said, you know, as you can imagine, I would be rather hesitant to do that, but he did agree to it. And I ended up in a four-hour sit-down, private, off-the-record conversation with Harry. Four solid hours, and because it was off-the-record, I'm not going to share anything that he said without his permission, but I will tell you a couple of things that I said to him. And the one thing that I think is most important to know is that, as I said before, the title of my series on the Capitol Police were that they were set up as sacrificial pawns that day. And I told Harry right from the get-go that I believe that he was set up as well, and I believe that he has been used as a pawn by the Department of Justice and by the FBI in shaping the continuance of this ongoing narrative of insurrection. And uh, in fact, when the, uh, the, the January 6th committee was first put together, Nancy Pelosi is famously uh, recorded as saying, and I, this is an exact quote, she said that we intend to establish and preserve the narrative of January 6th. And I will tell you that the stories we have coming out are going to show that there was a concerted effort to manipulate information, manipulate evidence, suppress evidence, and create evidence that does not exist in order to uh, reach those goals that she stated of establishing the narrative. Now, how much of that is Harry a part of? We're, we're, we're still you know looking at that, and I'm talking to him. His birthday was yesterday. I gave him a happy birthday note. He said, thank you. Um, I understand why so many media figures, particularly on the other side, like him. He's very. I like- don't. He, he in person, he's a very likable guy. He is a big guy. He's the you know he's, he's he was what you might regard as the uh, you know the the uh, the gentle giant kind of guy, and and we had a very personable and a very um, amicable, kind rapport for that for that four hours. So I understand why. People are drawn to him and why he's uh, been given the time that he's been given in the media. Um, I have told him that there are quite a few things in the evidence that's forthcoming that does not comport with some of his testimony and with some of the evidence or or some of the narratives that he's presented in his forthcoming book. But to be honest with you, I still believe that he's part of the setup and that he's being used as a pawn himself by the Department of Justice. And uh, if I'm being perfectly honest with Jason, he he claims to be a a Christian, I am, you are. My heart goes out to him, and I hope that uh, that, uh, Harry will eventually see way to maybe talk to me a little bit further and a little deeper and give me a little bit more inside information.
0: He's been put out as a hero. He received some Citizens Award from Joe Biden. Uh, You know, MSNBC has treated him like a god. Yeah. Uh, It it, as opposed to Tarek Johnson, who actually and, and walk my audience through. What Tarek Johnson did, and it seems to be backed up by witnesses and video, what he actually did on January 6th that was heroic, but he's been villainized.
1: Yeah, Tarek is a very interesting character. Uh, myself and Joe Hanneman from the Epic Times, he and I actually developed Tarek as a A whistleblower. And we had worked with him for many weeks in advance of our stories, respective stories coming out about Tarek. And one of the things that we learned uh, was through our acquisition of audio tapes of the Capitol Police, uh, radio comms, through various documentations, uh, Tarek's disciplinary report, um, uh, all manner of of documentation is that, and then as well as my access to the, the January 6th video, is that Tarek is a truth teller. Everything that he ever told us that he did said, the actions that he took that day to both uh, evacuate the the Senate chambers and then the House chambers, and then to engage in a rescue operation with two Oath Keepers to bring out 16 distressed and trapped um, uh, USCP Capitol Police officers out out of the building that day. Every single thing that he ever told us is verifiable by the documentation, the radio comms, and the video. Tark is a truth teller, and the one thing that I will say is is that immediately when all hell broke loose that day on that campus, and let's let's be perfectly honest, it did. The first blood was not drawn by the Capitol Police. That was by these provocateurs that were in the crowd that attacked them. The first officer to go down, she was knocked unconscious. Her name is Carolyn Edwards. And that was on that west side barricade where the first breach of the campus took place. And then it proceeded from there and the violence escalated. I actually was there that day myself and I arrived at the west side battlefront at one nineteen p.m. is when I turned my camera on. And I began to document from, from there. And When we heard the radio comms, we heard Tarek's voice. And he identified by his call sign, which is 405J John. And he would identify himself on the radio comms. And the first thing he was doing was looking for uh, help to uh, bring uh, relief and first aid water bottles to the uh, distressed officers who were being pepper sprayed by the crowd. Uh, elements of the actual protesters or rioters that were there. There was, in fact, violence taking place on the wrong side of that fencing. And so you can hear his voice. He was trying to set up triage tents. He was ordering more bottles, cases of water to be delivered down there so that they could wash the the pepper spray and such out of their eyes. And then you hear him starting to take command because as they would call for on the radios to the command center and ask for help from the assistant chief in charge that day, who was assistant chief Yogananda Pittman in the command center, they were getting no response whatsoever. And he was being uh, ignored, ignored, ignored. And so he, you could see over and over as he escalated his own uh, initiative to take, control of the situation. And he was, he was ordering officers where they needed to be. He finally, when the, when the, it was inevitable, it seemed to be that those, those lines were going to be breached. He was calling officers in. He then called the, um, what they call the M4 units in, which are the guys carrying the automatic rifles, which Harry Dunn was, was one of those officers. And he called them into the building. And the reason he did that is he didn't want the opportunity for rioters to be able to take automatic weapons away from the cl- police. So act, And he's doing all of this without assistance from the command center. And then finally they get to the place where they now the, the building has been breached and these people are moving towards the Senate and towards the House changer, chambers uh, respectively. And he's begging for assistance and he's begging for direction from command. What do I do? upon receiving no direction whatsoever. You've heard these oh. audio tapes. That's correct. You're not taking someone's word. Oh, no, no, no. I, I not only have heard the audio tapes, I have the transcripts of those of those tapes. So I've been able to compare them and, and validate them. And I've been able to look at the videos of Tark in this scenario from the capital CTV cameras and verify that these were the actions that he was taking as we're hearing his voice. And then, he without uh, he basically makes a statement that I'm going to take. I, if I, I hope I get this right, Tark, but I, he says something to the effect, "I'll take the 550 and the 534, and those are the Capitol police designations for disciplinary actions for him taking the initiative without." command authority. And when he says I'll take the 550 and the 534, he's opening himself up to disciplinary action. And but what he did was he executed the evacuation of the Senate. Now some of these, you know, senators are Octogenarians. There, you know, some of these are barely am, ambulatory people, and and so uh, they had to get out soon before the rioters got to them. He found a clear path. He got them out as soon as he radios, and you can hear his voice again. As soon as he has confirmation that all of the senators are in the tunnels, on their way evacuating toward the Senate cha- uh, the Senate buildings across the street, he then breaks out in a run and heads over to the uh, the House chambers and begins the same evacuation of the house chamber as well. Unfortunately, because he did not get the command authority, the directive, at the time that he asked for permission to begin this this series of evacuations, it led to the moment where Ashley Babbitt enters that hallway just outside of the house chambers. Michael Byrd, Lieutenant Michael Byrd, the officer who shot her, he was to be the trailing officer to follow the final evacuees from the house chamber down into the tunnels. And unfortunately, because Yogananda Pittman, the assistant chief, did not respond to Tarek Johnson's requests for evacuation, and he delayed and he delayed and delayed, that eight minutes were critical because had she given permission for Tarek to evacuate when he first asked for that permission, then by the time Ashley arrived in that area, Lieutenant Byrd would have been gone and she would be alive today.
0: And so Nick Searcy and Sarah Maccabee talked about Yogananda mm-hmm. and and she's another person that has she not been rewarded and treated kind of heroically or or I think does she now work in, in California somewhere? At a... UC
1: Berkeley. She's the chief of the UC Berkeley Police Department now. That would be considered an elevation. She's. It's an elevation, not only in status but also in pay significantly. We know what the previous uh, chief of the of the uh, uh, UC Berkeley Police Department made. He made in excess of a half a million dollars a year in total compensation, and that would be roughly double what she was making at the Capitol Police. But it goes deeper than that.
0: Well, do tell.
1: Well, let's just uh, quick, quickly review the the series of events. So, the day after January six, then Chief Stephen Sun was. Asked to resign by Pelosi. He tendered his resignation. And the next day, Yogananda Pittman was elevated to acting chief of police, which she held for eight months until they put um, the current chief of police, a manger in, in that place. She then was given her old job back as the assistant chief of police. But this is an important aspect of this story. Her role as assistant chief of police was she was head of Capitol Police Intelligence. That was her job. Was there an intelligent breakdown that day? Uh, You know, undeniably, but we can get into that later if you want to. More importantly, is that in the weeks following, just two or four uh, 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 weeks-ish following January 6th, there was a no confidence vote. 92% of the Capitol Police officers in their union voted a no confidence vote for Yogananda Pittman at that time, nevertheless, she was not only allowed to remain as acting chief for 8 months but given her old job back as head of intelligence which she then held until the end of 2022 when she was then offered the position at UC Berkeley right outside of uh uh Nancy Pelosi's district I might add and of course uh then she took that job but the 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 story gets a little uh <laughs> a little darker from there because Not only was she granted that job, and I think she was sworn in in, at Berkeley, and this this is my memory, sometime in February, I want to say, of this year, but she was allowed to maintain her position with the Capitol Police as an unpaid employee up until June so that she could qualify for her full Capitol Police position, or pension, rather. So she was, and this is, we understand, to be an illegal maneuver that was approved by current acting our current chief uh, manger. So Yogananda
0: performs terribly on January 6th, but gets a sweetheart deal on her way out the door and a sweetheart deal in right outside Nancy Pelosi's district in Northern California. and and has she been questioned?
1: By anyone? Yeah, she's, she's done several congressional uh, testimonies. She's been interviewed several times by uh, Congress. And then in addition to that, just before uh, this um, uh, time when she qualified for her full pension for the Capitol Police, we do know that she was secretly brought in. They never announced it. She was actually brought in to testify before Congress. And we know that because we have photos of her, videos of her leaving the uh, O'Neill building where they... Question her.
0: And are, are the rumors true that she'll probably be the next Supreme Court Justice? <laughs> <go by?
1: laughs> yeah, I, 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 I doubt that very seriously.
0: I don't know, man. Yeah, I
1: mean, I, Who knows?
0: I mean, the last one couldn't define what a woman is. I That's mean, right. Yogananda's as qualified. As... <sighs> so, and from your February story, one of the things I read that really caught my attention is that. Harry Dunn's actions tended to escalate things, uh, and this is from your story in February where right. he's on tape yelling, "You'll be finished in one effing minute. You're effing hurting us. Get the f out. Get the f out of here. You're hurting us. You're hurt." And you played this for another Capitol police officer that was trained by him, and it's like this isn't how you de-escalate things. Right. He, he and so. That's I know he's a pawn, but did someone put a battery in his back, perhaps? And, and by that, did someone gas him up, provoke him to want to escalate things on January 6th or he just lost his cool? Perhaps?
1: You know, I'm, I'm not going to play psychologist. Uh, one of my uh, <laughs> one of my long term goals is that I want to sit down one day and I want to play some of these videos for Jordan Peterson and let him. Tell me what he thinks about Harry Dunn. That, 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 that's something I'd love to do someday. Jordan, please you know, call me. But the, the point being is, is that I, I think that that Harry, despite his 6'7, 300 plus pound stature, despite the fact that he was carrying an M4 automatic rifle that day, I think he's a fragile figure. And I think he's fragile um, psychologically. Uh, because he did break that day, when so many other officers were able to deescalate and to and to and to operate within their training and deescalation procedures he did, in fact, lose it. In fact, at one point, he was standing at the top of a stairwell down in what they call the crypt that's underneath the rotunda. And that stairwell led down to an area where officers were being uh, given first aid and and decontamination from all of the, the OC and pepper spray that they were being hit with. And while he was standing there, he was shouting and cursing protesters across the room at, to, at one point where Captain Big Ben Smith of the Capitol Police had to run over to him, and it's on video, and put his hand and like, you know, settle down, Harry, settle down, Harry. And then about a minute later, the radio went off that shots had been fired. Now, this is approximately 243, 244. Those shot, or that shot, would have been the one that killed Ashley Babbitt, and he broke out in a, ran, a run, and he ran upstairs, up a another staircase to the rotunda level, and that's where he encountered the Oath Keepers that day, and that's where he also said to the first Oath Keeper who he met was Ken Harrelson, and Ken Harrelson he saw that Ken saw the distress of this officer carrying an automatic weapon. Ken is a disabled uh, Army veteran himself. He looked over and and saw what was happening, and, and Harry said, they're killing us down here, and, and, and Ken hadn't even seen any violence yet. And I can explain that in detail, but, but that's another story. And Ken went, really? And he said, yeah. He said, they're carrying us off in stretchers by the dozens. This is what Harry said. Well, there's not a single police officer that day that was carried off in a stretcher. Not that we have on video anywhere, out of tens of thousands of hours worth of video. So he was already distressed, already seeing things, imagining things, escalating things in his own mind in a way that other officers weren't. The Oath Keepers became very concerned about this, highly agitated. And, and Harry told me, I, I almost said something, I, I, I can't say opposite. but Harry has said, as he said in that, in that ABC interview, that he was agitated, he was distressed, he was scared. He has, he has testified to that, and that in that moment, the Oath Keepers saw him as a distressed officer. He was being berated by people in the crowd, not by the Oath Keepers, and the Oath Keepers then stood in front of him, turned their backs to him, and formed a line in front of him. And At one point, you can see Ken Harrelson holding his arms out and holding protesters back from from Harry Dunn, as some of them taunted him. And, um, but that's not the way the testimony came out in the trials. And Ken Harrelson, Oathkeeper, has he not, he's been charged and convicted? He's been charged and convicted. Fortunately, he was one of those not convicted of seditious conspiracy, and he received one of the lighter sentences in that um, situation. In his particular trial, he was uh, tried with four other Oath Keepers, uh, and he was also in the trial with the Oath Keeper founder, Stuart Rhodes. And Stuart Rhodes received 18 years from Judge Amit Beda, Meta in that crowd, and Ken was only given four. And this was one of the Rare moments of of uh, compassion, civility, or, or humanity that I saw from Judge Maida, because in his sentencing hearing, he said of Ken, he said, "I don't think that you are the man that the government has made you out to be," and he only gave him four years.
0: So that I would hear that and go, "I don't think you're guilty, but I'm going to give you four years because what I have Look. to." <laughs>
1: If I if I go into opinion and analysis right now, I can tell you that from what I saw is that the the trial itself was a fait accompli. It was a kangaroo court all the way through and that the uh, the end result was predetermined by a star chamber, uh, you know, of of Department of Justice, FBI, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera, and that this was um, essentially their way of saying to America, we're going to we're going to show our humanity and show our fairness by giving Ken a lesser sentence, giving him only four years, but we're going to hit Stuart Rhodes with 18 years, who did not even go into the Capitol that day.
0: And so, <laughs> Ken Harrelson, and according to your story, and and I think part of your story, even with Tariq Johnson, the Oath Keepers were actually assisting these Capitol Police officers, not being adversarial with them. There were several of these oath keepers that didn't they accompany Tarek Johnson to help him rescue some people? You just described something that I think is you can see on video where they're and, and so and and I just want for the audience to understand the oath keepers allegedly are these horrible, terrible white supremacists, mm-hmm. but these are black officers that they're assisting and defending. Violating, I guess, their KKK pledge, uh, and
1: a, am I am I accurate here? Well, I tell you what, let's 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 dispel the first major inaccuracy about them being white supremacists. First of all, the number two man in the Oath Keepers hierarchy, the name, name by a uh, man by the name of Greg McWhorter uh, out of Montana, he's a black man. He was the number two man. He was the president of the Oath Keepers. He also ended up turning up being a an FBI. Confidential Human Source and had been working with the FBI for months in advance of January 6th. He did not travel to uh, January 6th, nor did he show up for his scheduled testimony subpoenaed to be there by the defense teams. And the reason he didn't show up is uh, he had a medical emergency as he was boarding the plane, a medical emergency. And so let's start there. Number two, the third trial uh, included one of the Oath Keepers who was known as Michael Whip Green, and he was designated as the ground team leader on January 6th. He's the actual organizer that organized the Oath Keepers for all of the security operations that they were performing at various side stages and escorting uh, Trump VIPs and and that sort of thing because that's what they were there for that day. And so the ground team leader, Michael Whip Green, is a black man. He's also the only one acquitted in that trial. Another man, uh, I forget his first name, uh, by the name of Beeks, he is the other Oath Keeper acquitted that day. He's a Broadway actor, and he also is a black man. So, no, the oathkeepers were not a white supremacist organization, and uh, that's unfortunately not been shared by mainstream media very widely. Did the black old keepers get sweetheart deals
0: because they're black?
1: You know, I'm not going to go there, but I will tell you this. They faced a DC jury and a DC jury is going to be sympathetic. And I'm not going to go any further than that. It's just to be DC
0: honest, is 94% black probably. And so the jury pool there.
1: From. Yeah, it's, it, it's certainly not that, that, uh, that large of a, a racial disparity, but it's a, it's a 92.5% uh, jury pool that voted for Biden. It was a 95.5% jury pool by uh, scientific uh, polling that said that they were predisposed to the guilt of the Oath Keepers. And obviously a very, very democratic, very, very leftist jury pool so I'm going to at least allow uh, that there was some sympathies there.
0: I can't, I, this, this story is just infuriating to me. The, the, I, last week, this week, I just, I can't believe we're good with this level of unfairness. I, I just, I can't, I, it's, it's mind-blowing to me.
1: The most significant unfairness in all of this has been the government's absolute refusal to allow change of venue in these trials. As we know, according to the Constitution, every citizen, regardless of what you're charged with, is to be granted the opportunity to make your case in front of a jury of your peers. Scientific polling, as I said, in the Oath Keepers trial, the first Oath Keepers trial, was that 95.5% of the D.C. jury pool believed in and were predisposed to the guilt of the oath keepers outside of the beltway the rest of the country it was only 55 percent that were predisposed now would they have had a better opportunity would that have been a jury of their peers because we know that the the country itself is equally divided on most issues right so a jury of your peers would be sitting in front of a jury pool equally divided not one so heavily influenced by the dc media by the dc money that comes in all of these people live off of uh the tax paper, taxpayers even if you work for a 7-eleven or a safeway you're still living off of taxpayer money inside the beltway
0: steve thank you for making some time for us um, can't wait for your additional stories to come out Hopefully you'll come back and join us again. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing. I'm sure you're in the crosshairs, I'm sure as well.
1: Uh, Unfortunately, I am. I have been investigated myself. I have done my FBI interview back two years ago, and uh, they have an open file on me. And just uh, six or seven weeks ago, I received a grand jury subpoena for all of my January 6th videos. And then just this past Friday, uh, a week ago, I. Uh, my uh, my attorney received a call from the FBI saying that they believe and suspect that I'm withholding subpoenaed evidence from them, which I'm not. But in that conversation, the FBI agent said to my uh, attorney, and I quote, I just don't want Steve getting in any more trouble than he already is. <clears throat> they basically
0: put up a sign that says, conservatives beware of Washington, DC. We got Biden dogs protecting (laughs) Washington, DC. And so if you're not on board with Joe Biden, stay out of Washington, DC, because anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, we will string you up and lynch you. And you know, listen, Sarah McAbee has seen her husband three times for one hour, in the past two years. Right. It's...
1: And she said in your interview last week that uh, that jury pool has a 99.4% conviction record there in DC. That's what these people are up against and that's what I'm gonna be up against if they file charges against me. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it.
0: Hopefully, Tar Johnson next
3: and our decisions, we all wanna go to heaven with freedom. It's my obligation on no hate discrimination Raising up your hands
2: for freedom. The Kaepernick
0: Method, previously on Fearless. I think the same enablers that talked Kaepernick and, and excused everything Kaepernick was doing. They're doing it all over again with Deion Sanders and, and, and trying to keep Dion above criticism. Seriously, there's all the caping up for Deion Sanders and, oh, he must be protected. And anybody that says anything uh, negative about Dion, they're racist or they're sellouts. It's the same people that, that think that shielding black public figures from any criticism is the key to making them successful. And, and that's just not the key. It's, just, it's stupid. So we weren't able to get Tarek Johnson. We'll, I think, have him next week, but certainly in the future. Uh, we'll end today's show by playing you a video of uh, Don't Tread on Me. And then once that ends, uh, we'll cue up some harmony and we'll see you next week. The middle school assistant principal who attempted to bully 12-year-old Jaden Rodriguez over his backpack Gadsden flag suffers post-traumatic history dysphoria, a mental illness common among feminists and racial justice warriors. PTHD causes its female victims to believe anything that transpired in American history before the rise of the Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements Is a misogynistic and racist trope. PTHD in women is a superiority psychosis. Sufferers think they're the smartest, most virtuous people to ever inhabit the planet and that adoption of their worldview cures all forms of injustice. The mental disorder is pervasive throughout Hollywood, academia, and corporate media. Based on my evaluation of the exchange between the administrator Beth Danjuma and Jaden's mother, it appears Danjuma has late stage PTHD. She likely burns candles and uses a Ouija board to communicate with Joseph Stalin, Fidel Castro, Karl Marx, Margaret Sanger, and Susan B. Anthony. Let me clarify, late last month, Vanguard Charter School booted Rodriguez from class over a patch on his backpack. The administrator explained to Jaden's mom that the Gadsden flag supported slavery. Take a listen.
2: Do they know what the Gadsden flag is? That it's a historical flag? So their, um, the reason that they do not want the flag, reason we do not want the flag this mm. is due to its origins with the slavery and slave trade. That is what was um, that's the reasoning behind
0: them, obviously. Know, the Gadsden flag and the catchphrase, don't tread on me, actually originated during the Revolutionary War. It's a proud part of America's founding. You would think that an educator would know this. Instead, Jaden and his mom had to explain it to Beth Danjuma. Years ago, before the onset of post-traumatic history dysphoria, Danjuma probably knew the origins of the flag. But over the last decade, as PTHD leaked from a New York Times laboratory and Ivy League institutions, America's entire history has been demonized. People like Dan Juma have been programmed to believe everything from America's past is evil and a symbol of sexism and racism. You might think that women contract PTHD at a higher rate than men, but it's not true. Men are just as likely to suffer the disorder as women. The disease does, however, manifest itself differently in men than women. As stated earlier, in women, PTHD causes a superiority psychosis. In men, it causes an inferiority complex. Men believe they have to apologize for everything that transpired before Hollywood executive Harvey Weinstein inspired the Me Too hashtag and Trayvon Martin sparked Black Lives Matter. PTHD triggers men to hate themselves, hate masculinity, and dedicate their lives to the emasculation of other men and the worship of women. The worldview of male PTHD sufferers is that men owe women an apology for the past, reparations, and a commitment to transition women into being more masculine. The PTHD worldview drives much of the insanity we see in sports. It's why William Leah Thomas was allowed to swim against women in the NCAAs. It's why the NFL and NBA are going out of their way to install women on coaching staffs. It's why ESPN has placed a woman on the set of virtually every show. It's why President Joe Biden traded an international terrorist, the merchant of death, for Brittany Griner. It's why Megan Rapino and the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team were able to promote the lie that they were underpaid. It's why WNBA players believe they should be flown around on private planes. The demonization of the past is a grift. It legitimizes reparations. It provokes alleged educators to believe any symbol originated before last week was a byproduct of slavery and systemic racism. The cure for post-traumatic history dysphoria is for men to quit apologizing for being men.
3: United. Now we're headed for downfall. So tell us,
2: cause together we're so much Get to me
3: Open up your eyes and see